This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's my delight to welcome you here. And in this program, as I think you may know, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive. He or she reads it and we discuss it, and then we ask him or her to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Michael Robbins. Michael Robbins is the author of two collections of poetry and uh, it was recently announced will serve as the judge for Penguin's 2015 National Poetry Series. Welcome, Michael Robbins. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. The poem you've chosen to read today is Myrtle by John Ashbury. John Ashbury, I suppose for many of us, the single great poet of the era... Mind you, if one had suggested that 30 years ago, perhaps even 20 years ago, and uh, 10 years ago, perhaps even, one would likely have been viewed in a rather odd way, as if one had been smoking crack or something. What has (laughs) happened? Well, I think certainly his age has allowed people to reassess his great body of work. He's now published, I don't know, 30 collections, 25 collections of poetry. And the breadth of his achievement, I think, is undeniable now. Well, he hasn't changed much. So what has changed in the readership? One thing about Ashbery that I've wondered about is that he seems to be claimed by every party in poetry. He's an experimentalist. He's a traditionalist. He's a the exception in that he doesn't belong to any one clan. Do you think that in some sense he has brought the clans together? Well, my experience is that the clans remain somewhat tribal, but certainly he is, as a point of agreement, bridged certain camps. You know, that's very difficult to find another poet about whom Charles Bernstein and Harold Bloom agree. You know, there would still be those, of course, despite that general assessment, who would say, well, this is absolute baloney, it's meaningless nonsense, I can't make head nor tail of it, why on earth would anyone buy into it? Yes, some of my good friends feel that way. And there's something to be said for that response. I think he courts it. I don't think it's meaningless, but 
one thing that Ashbery has done is write a poetry that is enormously challenging and difficult in a time when we, the few readers of poetry left, often want something direct and easily graspable. Indeed, it's a fascinating area, isn't it? I mean, when one asks someone to give an example of a poem that's direct and accessible, there's generally a bit of a silence. I think poetry should be difficult and challenging. It's not unreasonable that it would be challenging, my theory is, in a challenging era, in a difficult era. And perhaps every era has been difficult. John Donne lived Mm. in a difficult era. William Shakespeare in that same era, a difficult era. Has there ever been an era that was not difficult? Well, this is what both amuses and irks me when people complain about the difficulty of modern poetry. And you can find Jarrell, Randall Jarrell in the 50s saying the same thing. It's not as if these people spend their evenings poring over the works of Dante or Blake or indeed Dunn. If they want accessible poetry, where is it to be found exactly? The truth is that contemporary cinema is difficult. Even the Hollywood blockbuster is in its way difficult. We need to learn how to look at a movie. And we've exposed ourselves to movie after movie and have learned how to read a movie, as it were, because of a total immersion. We have not, in general, had that same experience in poetry. Yes, exactly. There's the average moviegoer, to mythologize a bit, is perfectly capable of following immensely detailed and intricate and contradictory narratives. And there's no reason that such a person could not follow contemporary poetry. It's just a matter of exposure and training. And unfortunately, we tend not to introduce poetry in the primary schools anymore. We don't. And one of the things I must say that we are very happy about at The New Yorker is that we have this opportunity in this forum to allow people to think a little bit more about poetry. In this case, Myrtle by John Ashbury. Why did you choose this? There are a few reasons. I should say right up front that one of the interesting things about this poem is that it is an exception and that it is a relatively straightforward and easily followed poem by John Ashbery. It has few of his characteristic moments of parataxis and disjunction. It really is a metaphysical poem. It follows an extended conceit. And it is, for me, quite important because it was the first poem published in The New Yorker that I fell in love with and had not read much Ashbery. What I had had been baffling to me. And I was at my grandmother's in Kansas and she had the New Yorker, and I read this poem, and I thought, well, this is, this is something else. It occurred to me that I should find some obscure gem from the 30s or something, because, of course, it is not in any way an unexpected choice on my part. But it was the first poem in, printed in this august journal that meant something to me. And it was really the first poem by John Ashbery that I fell in love with, and it led to my deep immersion in his works. It does welcome one in, though it has to be said that some readers, while being embraced, may also be ever so slightly, what would one say, fended off with the very title, because Mm. the title itself, uh, the minute one speaks it, is going in at least two directions, the name of the woman and the name of the plant. The plant, yes. And in that, it is characteristic. Although I should note again that it's rare that an Ashbery title actually has anything to do with the poem that is immediate 
But yes, one is pointed immediately in the direction of names, but the name is unclear until you begin to read the poem. There's a fabulous poem by Robert Frost in which he has a lot of play on the names Maple and Mabel. Indeed. And maybe he had that in, in mind because this is a poem that revels in onomamania. I am not, I've never heard that word pronounced out loud or said it aloud before. We've never had it on the podcast. <laughs> we're, we're very glad to have it with us today. But it, it, is, uh, it has an obsession with names. And it plays with the notion that I know is also important to you that nomen est omen, that naming is fate that you are fated by the very act of naming. And it comes to a very surprising conclusion about that notion. Now, there's a character here, St. Benno. Do we, what do we know, if anything, what do we know about St. Benno? Well, uh, my extensive research on the subject included five minutes of Googling this morning. <laughs> and we learned that St. Benno, for one thing, his feast day is June 16th. And about June 16th, we know that it is the day on which the action of Joyce's Ulysses takes place, Bloom's Day. And if ever there was a, a writer who was obsessed with names, it was James Joyce. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the conceit of the poem is that a river is being named, and the river of Finnegan's Wake comes to mind immediately. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the great passage in Ulysses wherein the water is followed throughout the city. I don't know that that's anything more than a coincidence, but it's certainly in keeping with the spirit of the poem. Right. Let's hear Myrtle by John Ashbery, read here by Michael Robbins. Myrtle. How funny your name would be if you could follow it back to where the first person thought of saying it, naming himself that, or maybe some other person thought of it and named that person. It would be like following a river to its source, which would be impossible. Rivers have no source. They just automatically appear at a place where they get wider, and soon a real river comes along with fish and debris, regal as you please, and someone has already given it a name. Saint Benno. Saints are popular for this purpose. Or, or, or some other name, the name of his long-lost girlfriend, who comes at long last to impersonate that river on a stage her voice clanking like its bed, her clothing of sand and pasted paper, a piece of real technology, while all along she is thinking, I can do what I want to do, but I want to stay here. Another influence, I think, here may be Elizabeth Bishop, who, of course, is uh, uh, famous for that wonderful tendency uh, to correct herself as she goes along. And I must say that I hadn't really grasped until I heard you read it there, the the, the fact that or, or or is or. in the poem or or which a phrase we use in everyday speech, but which one rarely sees enshrined, as it were, in a poem. Mm -hmm. This is probably the most characteristic Ashbarian moment in the poem: his reproduction of the hesitancy and the accident of everyday speech. And just that the, the way that the, the tonal shifts in his poems so often reproduce things that aren't poetic, supposedly, the material that gets left out of poems, that or, or, or that uh, hesitancy that we rarely hear reproduced in art. 
Now, Myrtle by John Ashbery was read there by Michael Robbins. It's a poem that appeared in the March 15th, 1993 issue of the magazine. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. In the July 7th, 2014 New Yorker, we published your poem, Country Music. And may I say that this also is a poem that perhaps includes uh, phrases, snatches of phrases that one might overhear in the course of going about one's business during the course of a day and uh, that one might not necessarily expect to come across in a poem. Yes, the tone I was going for in this poem, or the voice, I should say, was an informal one intended to reproduce the, or to capture, I guess, the artificed informality of some of the country music that I love, but also the down on, on, on your luck personae that come through not only in country music, but in, in the short stories of the region that I'm writing about here. People like Flannery O'Connor or Eudora Welty, who are so good at, not that this echoes them in any way, but they were so good at reproducing that informality. Can you psych yourself back into the time that you worked on this poem? Uh, first of all, how long would you have spent writing this poem? Oh, boy. It depends on what how, what you mean. The first draft probably evolved over a number of days. I tend to write a stanza or three and then think about it and write a few more over a few days, probably a, a week or so in all, in all. And then I email it to my friend Anthony Madrid, who records his comments on it and sends them back. And then I revise it. We go on like that until both of us are satisfied with it. So you have a, a an ideal reader whom you involve literally in the process. Not a poem of mine that has appeared in the last, well, since we met in 2009, has gone uncritiqued by him. Now, the lyric of a song is almost always in the sense of a line, stops at the end of the line or the end of two lines, and certainly at the end of a verse. And that's very much the case here. It's, it mimics the structure of uh, so many country songs. I had been listening to Jason Isbell. I don't know if you know him. His his album Southeastern when I wrote this. It's not exactly country. It's it's more country rock kind of music, but I had been listening to it and and he and I follow each other on Twitter and when this came out I sent it to him and he he wrote he said he told me that he thought it could be lyrics for a song. And in fact, Shannon McArdle, formerly of the Mendoza line, has set it to music. I think it's going to be on her next record. Fabulous. Well, before that comes out, we (laughs) have the opportunity now to hear it interpreted by yourself. Now, I use the word interpreted. Do you think of yourself, you're about to read this poem Mm -hmm. for, for us. What's going through your mind? Oh, just what normally goes through my mind, which is that I'm so much better at reading other people's poetry than my own. There's not as much reticence. I have the ability to 
be somewhat theatrical when I'm reading someone else's poem, and I'm I'm hesitant to do that because it, it seems too self-aggrandizing or something. For some people, it's the other way around, and they feel much more worried about messing up, put crudely, uh, a poem by someone else. In a strange way, if it's, if it's one's own poem, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter so much. That's true, but I think since I teach poetry, I'm so used to reading other people's poems aloud to students that I don't worry about it. Well, maybe you should imagine this as a poem by someone else. Uh, that's what I try to do. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Country music. God bless the midnight bus depot, the busted guitar case. God bless diazepam, its dilatory grace. God, keep Carl Perkins warm, and Jesus Christ, erase my name from all the files in the county's database. The dog that bit my leg the night I left the state, Lord, won't you let his vaccines be up to date? West Point to the south of me, Memphis to the north. In between is planted with pinwheels for the fourth. Smokestack lightning, Jesus Christ, whatever your name is. Bless my fingers on these strings, I'll make us both famous. How about that, the new moon, same as it ever was? You must have been high as a kite when you created us. So hurry, hurry, step right up, there's something you should see. The sun shines on the bus depot like a coat of creole pink. God keep the world this clean and bright and easy to believe in, and let me catch my bus all right. And then we'll call it even. That was Michael Robbins reading his poem, Country Music. Now, Michael, I notice here, uh, particularly again as I listen to it, a range of references. We have Talking Heads, same as it ever was. We have Alfred Lord Tennyson, West Point to the south of me, Memphis to the north, which is a version of the Charge of the Light Brigade. Indeed. You're very wide-ranging in your references. Listening to country music, um, one would be hard put to come up with a reason why a poem like this shouldn't be in everyone's back of the mind. Well, I could not agree with you more. I mean, this this is a poem that uh, hits one immediately. We can relate to it immediately. Again, if we had really much more exposure to to a poem of this kind, we would probably not be sitting around complaining about how little poetry means to us, how little of it there is to begin with. I can tell you sitting here at The New Yorker, we have a very different sense of things. We have a sense of huge amounts of poetry being written, and indeed we have a sense of huge amounts of it coming across our (laughs) transom, and we're delighted to see it, though it does take us a while to read it all. And... um, so, I mean, the, the idea that there's not much happening on the poetry front is one that, you know, can easily be countered. Oh, sure. There's so much going on. I think um, a lot of what's going on is, is uh, as it always is, dross. But there's a great deal of gold being spun at any time. And uh, just because the readership has shrunk or so are told, doesn't mean that there's not a great deal of wonderful poetry being being written right now. Absolutely, and we're very pleased uh, to be able to carry your poem, Country Music, Michael Robbins, as part of that uh, great store of poems. So thank you very much indeed for talking with us today, Michael Robbins. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's been a pleasure.
Now, Myrtle by John Ashbury, as well as Michael Robbins' poem, Country Music, may be found on newyorker.com. John Ashbury's most recent book of poems, I think, is Quick Question. John publishes a book every 10 minutes, so it's hard to know. We're delighted that he does, by the way. Michael Robbins' most recent collection is The Second Sex. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, thank you. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 